You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Sermon text is from uh, Acts, starting in chapter 6, starting in verse 7, and then my reading will go through the end of chapter 6. So the preaching about God flourished. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And so they came, dragged him off, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this place and the, this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. Good morning, good morning. I'm Chad, one of the pastors here at King's Cross, and so grateful to be here with you this morning, and so grateful to be in continuing in Acts, where we're going to be, as was read this morning, starting in chapter 6, beginning of verse 7, and really the entirety of the story we're covering through the end of chapter 7. Um, but we're talking about this particular story, which is Stephen, who is the first recorded martyr that we have. It's an escalation of the trials that have been occurring in the book of Acts. Um, we have the first trial where where they're merely brought in and intimidated and told to stop. The second trial, they come in before the Sanhedrin, and they're beaten to try to scare them. And now we come to Stephen, and Stephen actually faces down death. And Stephen is not new to the story. He showed up merely in chapter 6, in verse, um, right in verse 6, I believe, of chapter 6. And, and his life ends here at the end of chapter 7. Interesting, fun fact for you, if you didn't already know this, that's actually a namesake of mine. My first name is not Chad, it is Stephen, spelled like this, which is pronounced Stephen. (laughs) Somewhere along the way, probably when Stephen Curry showed up and started making a lot of waves, I have to argue with people about how to pronounce my name correctly. Everyone wants to call me Stephen, but that's okay. This is Stephen. We're going to talk about Stephen. I'm not angry about it at all. It is funny, actually. I'm not... We won't go down that road. We'll talk later. Um, But this is Stephen. And Stephen is a deacon that was disappointed. And he comes to a point of, uh, of really where he's facing the Sanhedrin. He's facing false accusations. He's facing what he does or does not realize could mean death. They've been threatened. But he does it fearlessly. He does it boldly. We actually already had... Uh, a previous message during this same series called A Bold Kingdom Witness. And I said, oh no, am I going to hit some of the same stuff? I'm just going to repeat. That's not a bad thing. But we see some very unique things in Stephen. And we're covering this passage over two weeks, this week and next week. 
and we're, we're, we're going to peel this back a little bit to talk about uh, from two different angles. And today in particular, we're going to talk about Stephen himself and his fearless faith. What do we see in his life? What is it about Stephen that gave him the strength and the fortitude to stand up to what was really at that time very scary situation? And, and for a testimony uh, about a man who claimed to be God, who died for our sins, and he is carrying this message and facing opposition. Next week when we come to this, we're going to look at what opposition he faced and why. We're going to look more fully at the actual story, or not story, but the sermon that he gives and is recorded in Acts. He actually preaches a nice little summary. Uh, Patrick didn't read all of it because you're like, you know what, we'll be here for 10 minutes. Uh, because he preaches a summary, really, of the Old Testament. Um, remember, he's a Greek. Uh, he's a Greek Jew, a Hellenistic Jew. And he's speaking to the Sanhedrin who he's been placed in front of, who are uh, Judeo, uh, they're, they're uh, Hebraic Jews. So we're going to talk about this this morning. And we're going to get into what is exactly this fearless faith that Stephen had and how he demonstrated that. Before we do, I wanted to pray because we need the Holy Spirit with us uh, to teach us. So pray with me. Father, I'm grateful for the privilege it is to, to worship together in the Word. I'm thankful for the chance to, to, to read the words that you've provided and given to us, the preservation of this text, the, the message that's before us. God, I ask that your Spirit would illuminate it, that you would teach us and you would show us in all wisdom what is right and good and true, and Lord, make us more like Christ. Show us in here how we could walk and live with a confident, fearless faith, no matter the opposition, no matter the trial, no matter the difficulty. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Corey Tinboom was uh, actually a Holocaust survivor, someone who survived the, uh, a concentration camp during the Holocaust as a 12-year-old. She later went on to travel the world speaking uh, and, and talking about forgiveness and the importance of reconciliation. Uh, actually, later in her life, she personally forgave two guards from her um, concentration camp that were, were a part of harming and hurting some of her friends that died. Um, so she spoke about reconciliation, spoke about forgiveness, and she faced those trials. But before she did that, when she was a much younger um, child, she talks about a story where she's speaking with her father, and she says, Daddy, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. This is before 12 she's thinking about this. Tell me, her father wisely responded, when you take a train trip from Harlem to Amsterdam, when do I, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, Daddy. You give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That's right, he replied. And so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in heaven knows when you're going to need things too. Today, you do not need the strength to be a martyr. But as soon as you are called upon for the honor of facing death for Jesus, he will supply the strength you need just in time. Later, she tells a story from her time in Ravensbrück, which was the Nazi concentration camp she was at where she said a group of fellow prisoners actually approached her and asked her to tell them some Bible stories. The camp guards called the Bible, uh, the Bible das Lugenbach, the book of lies. That's what the camp guards referred to the Bible. 
Death by cruel punishment had been promised for any prisoner who was found processing or possessing a Bible or talking about the Lord. And despite her awareness of those potential consequences, Corey retrieved her Bible and started teaching from the Scripture. Suddenly, she was aware of a figure behind her. One of the prisoners silently mouthed the words, Hide your Bible, it's Loney. Corey knew Loney well. She was among the cruelest of all the women guards. Corey, however, felt she had to obey God, who had so clearly guided her to bring a Bible message to the prisoners that morning. Loney remained motionless behind her as she finished her teaching. And Corey then said, let's now sing a hymn of praise. She could see the worried, anxious looks on the faces of the prisoners. Before it had been only her speaking, but now they too were being asked to join her in singing. But Corey believed God wanted them to be bold, even in the face of the enemy. So they sang. When the hymn came to an end, Loney instructed another song like that one. She had enjoyed the singing and wanted to hear more. Heartened, the prisoners sang song after song, and afterward, Corey even went to Loney and spoke to her about her need for Christ as her Savior. Corey said she learned from this experience, I knew that every word I said could mean death. Yet never before had I felt such peace and joy in my heart as while I was giving the Bible message in the presence of mine enemy. God gave me the grace and power I needed. The money for the train ticket arrived just the moment I was to step on the train. In our passage today, Stephen faces enemies of Jesus. And God gave him the grace, the wisdom, and the power that he needed just at the right time. Brothers and sisters, we need this same grace, wisdom, and power. We need this same grace, wisdom, and power. You know, in the United States here today, we likely expect to not face any form of persecution that'll get us stoned. I know that's true. Uh, the odds are you're not going to be carried before some form of court that's going to take you out back and beat you till you're dead. Uh, it is possible that you would face persecution and testing that doesn't come from the enemy that you see, though. See, we understand that there are intelligent, evil enemies of God who work outside of our sight, and they work in ways that still persecute and harm us, even if it's not necessarily in front of the Sanhedrin. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So the truth is, even though the Sanhedrin were standing right there in front of Stephen, in reality it was, as Paul says, him not wrestling against flesh and blood, but it's against those enemies that are also unseen, that are working and manipulating. And as we see in Scripture to hear that really those who ob the, um, oppose Christ are working with the enemy, whether they know it or not. In Job, the Satan was allowed to test Job with all forms of sickness and harm and loss. If you recall that story, time after time he loses child, he loses uh, everything he owns. He is, ends up with sickness and boils at the front gate where he lost all his wealth and all his possessions. And he was tested in that way. But as disciples of Jesus, worshipers of the Most High God, we should expect that his enemies will use every means necessary to distract us, to discourage us, and turn us away from answering faithfulness, uh, from unwavering faithfulness and obedience to him. We absolutely should expect it. In fact, 
Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Don't be surprised. No matter what form it takes, don't be surprised. Do we think because we don't face certain death in America that we don't face trial? That we don't face need for us to have unwavering faith and fear faithful, uh, fearless faithfulness? There was a father of one of my friends. He was an incredibly kind and gentle man. And he went to the doctor to get checked, hernia checked out one day. Happy, friendly, healthy, helpful. Great guy. They found out and gave him a diagnosis. He had such advanced abdominal cancer, they gave him weeks to live. Yet he had such joy that all the nurses on his floor came to see Mr. Bunn and to hear about Jesus. Peter goes on to say in that passage where he says, don't be surprised when fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening. He says this in verse 13, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. In fact, how is it that we can possibly rejoice? How will we have the strength to rejoice when we face ordeals, when we face suffering? How can we have joy when faced with cancer, with death of our loved ones, with financial devastation? You know, this country has gotten hit multiple times by financial devastation, and those without hope have jumped off of top of buildings when stock markets crash. Because they're ruined in that way, they are facing things they can't handle. How can we have strength and rejoice in the midst of that? We should look at Stephen's example in this passage. We should look and see what is it that Stephen found his joy in? What is it that shored him up so that when he faced what was really his death, whether he knew it or not, boldly? Let's look in verse, starting in verse 7. And I'm just going to read the very first couple of verses here. Because the very first thing we should do, like Stephen, is pursue personal holiness. It starts with us. Look at this in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Look what Stephen's doing right out of the gate. Stephen is described in this passage where he see him and meet him as a deacon or someone who's serving the church, and then he shows up and he's speaking about the gospel, and he dies at the end of it. And at every point along the way, he's talked about in 7.5 as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and 7.8, full of grace and power, and 7.10, they were unable to stand up against the wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. He was speaking in the spirit. In verse 55, Stephen, again, before he dies, looks to heaven and says, full of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what was strengthening and empowering Stephen? It was the Holy Spirit in him. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And what I would say to you today, if we hope to have any power, any grace, any wisdom and strength to stand against the enemy, we need the Holy Spirit. And we need to be filled by him. God has granted that as a gift to those who are his children. It's not to be taken for granted. It's not to be assumed or presumed upon, rather to be pursued. When I say pursuing holiness, to pursue what it is that kindles and what it says here fills us with the Holy Spirit. Scripture says we can quench the Holy Spirit, that we can ignore the Holy Spirit, that we can push it aside. 
And you can't expect to stand up against those who oppose you to have strength, power, and grace, and wisdom in time of trial if you have constantly rejected and ignored the leading of the Spirit in your life. The presence of God is in His Spirit, and He has always promised to lead and guide His people. And He's continued to do so. The work of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 3 is that He dwells in believers. He's literally the presence of God with us and in us. The fullness of God in us. The Almighty who has created all things, where Jesus says, all power and authority has been given to me and I will be with you always. We literally have the presence of God with us and in us in the Holy Spirit, is what 1 Corinthians tells us. In Ephesians 1, it says the seal of God's promise. It's his down payment. By giving us the Spirit, God has, has made right on his deal. It's like if you've tried to buy a house and you have to put earnest money down, especially in the markets we've had recently. People want to see a big check because you know, they want to know that you're going to be good on it because they've got 20, 30, 40, 50 other people ready to buy. Well, in this case, the Bible in Ephesians actually calls the Holy Spirit like God's down payment. He says, I'm going to redeem you. You are my child. Here's my spirit to prove it. And so he gives us the fullness of him in us. And John 16 says that, the Holy Spirit guides us to all truth and to knowledge. It guides us and leads us. In John 14, it teaches and reminds us. It's literally a helper given to us. In John 16, it's also there to convict us of sin. So when we waver, when we, when we miss the mark, when we're not doing those things we should do, and when we are doing things we should not do, that God promises his Spirit will speak to us. In 1 Corinthians 2, he reveals wisdom and gives us power. And Acts 1.8 gives us power. Ephesians 1 gives us power. Gives us spiritual gifts is what 1 Corinthians tells us. That it indwells the believers who are in the church and enables us to serve the church. Not just as a gift to you, but a spiritual gift to the entire body. And that is in you, in the Spirit. In Romans 8, it actually says it helps us in our weakness. When we don't even know what to pray for ourselves, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit grants us new life, is at work sanctifying us and producing good fruit in us, is what Galatians says. The Holy Spirit is important and should not be ignored. But the question we have to ask is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we be filled with the Spirit? What, what is different? Is there, but uh, some of us get a fraction, a few people get a portion over here, then you get another percentage, and maybe you got 20 over here for, I'll, I'll, can I borrow some? That's not how that works. So how is it we can be filled with the Spirit? Well, I think the evidence is actually something that Jesus said to us. He says this, in John 7, Jesus told his disciples, on the last and most important day of the festival, he said, he stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. In verse 39, it says this, he said this about the Spirit. So if anyone is thirsty, you want the Spirit, he says, come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within them. When you believe in Jesus, when you come to him, when you believe in him, to believe he is the Messiah, the Lord, who loves you and leads you into all life, and you follow him, as you follow him, to believe in Jesus is to obey him, to know him more and to follow where he leads. 
And I'd have to say off the evidence of the text, the scripture here, Stephen is likely one of those, given the right, given the uh, assignment of a deacon as he was in the last chapter, he is someone who is probably epitomizing what Acts 2.42 says, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That he is devoting himself to obedience and to fellowship because he wants to follow Jesus. To follow Christ closely. You can't expect to be full of the Spirit when you're consumed by things of the world. You can't be expect to be filled with the Spirit and, and find boldness in, in, in this world when you need it at the right time when you are consumed by all the distractions of the world. When, if you spend your time consumed by worldly lusts, by things of the flesh, by, by, by seeking things of wealth and power that are not what God told us to pursue. But in fact, we're told that we should be pursuing good deeds and good works that God has set apart for us as we follow Christ. And obedience, by the way, obedience is just doing those things you know to do now. Really, it's that simple. Obedience is what is it that God wants me to do now? And, and, and I'll do it. And then guess what? I'll, I'll guarantee it. I know it. I, I am I'm 40 years old, and I'm learning new stuff every day that I should be doing. I've talked to 70-year-olds who said they'd learn new stuff about Jesus every day. 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, they'll say, if they are following after Christ, they look back and go, man, I was dumb at 80. Because he teaches you but you have to follow after him. And I'm not talking about works, by the way. I'm not talking about works-based righteousness. I'm not saying that we do those things so that God might love us more. That's different. That's actually what Paul criticized the Galatians for. He said, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Did you know the only requirement for salvation in Scripture? And bring me another one if you find it. I don't think you will. Is to believe in Christ. No works, no effort. Just believe. Trust Him. Trust that He's sufficient. He is who He says He is and will do what He says He'll do. Believe Him. And here Paul is challenging them, were you saved by spirit, by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard? Are you, are you so foolish? After beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you've heard, just like Abraham who believed God and was credited to him? For righteousness. Just believe. Believe and follow. And here's the biggest difference, just if I could encourage this, because this is so challenging. You will inevitably, if you follow after God, come to a point of saying, how could he ever save me? I can never get this right. Okay, it's, it's like the opposite sides of this. If, if, you, if, you, if you ever spend time around a kid or you've parented one, you'll, you'll get to a point in that parenting, like, why do I have to say the same thing? over and over and over and they keep doing it again and again maybe you're a child you were on the other end of that your parents said I have told you over and over and over again and you keep doing the same thing okay 
when it comes to God, we're the kid. We're the child. Yet God doesn't rest his love on whether or not we do the right thing. It's not dependent on our actions. Just like with my own child, my, my love doesn't come and go based on whether or not they do what I need them to do that day. And, and, and I am an imperfect human being. And, and some of you in here may not have, the, the idea of a father might not resonate with you as something as you remember fondly. I understand that. We have a broken world. But if you would imagine with me a perfect father, one who sees you, wants the best for you, wants to lead you into life, and loves you no matter what happens. That's God the Father. And so it's not about us doing good works in order to earn his love. It's about rather because he loves us, we want to obey him. We want to do good. We want to exercise our belief in our obedience. God's work in us does not eliminate our work. This is a quote from a book by John Piper where he wrote, uh, John Piper's a theologian and a pastor. He said, he wrote, When I Don't Desire God and How to Fight for Joy. It's a book on this very topic of wrestling with whether God loves me. And he said this, God's work in, in us does not eliminate our work. It enables it. We work because he's the one that works in us. Therefore, the fight for joy is possible because God is fighting for us and through us. Faith can be similar to a muscle. Uh, maybe if you have anyone who ever goes to the gym or exercises yourself when you first start out and you're starting to win some weights, maybe you're not lifting. That muscle's not going to grow. That muscle's not going to build up. It's not going to strengthen. But if you start off on, you know, I'm going to come in here, I've never done this before, but I'm going to bench 450 because I think I saw somebody on TV do that. You're not going to get there. There's always the guy in the gym. It's like, you know what, 45s? Gotta, you know, I'm not going to judge him here in front of you, but I am. Okay. <laughs> it's like a muscle. And God wants to work and exercise and strengthen that muscle. And the great thing about it, as, as Piper has already pointed out, that God is fighting for us and through us in it. He's on our behalf working through us. And so we see in Stephen that he is a faithful man presented by Scripture as someone who has pursued holiness and obedience to Christ. To trust Christ in the small areas of our life day by day and devoting yourself to that just like the apostles did. And what was the result of that? Well, this first he pursued holiness, and I would, I would argue for us, if we pursue the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is working in us, the other things that we see in his life begins to flow a lot more naturally. Because the next thing we see is that he is, he, he is practicing purposeful gospel presence. I'm using alliteration today. Purposeful gospel presence. Interesting about that phrase is, Purposeful presence is a new phrase in uh, American work environment. If you haven't heard this, I didn't know it. I looked something up to make sure I was using English correctly. And this came up on, yeah, I'm, it's my first language too. So um, it came up on the search where apparently because people have been working home, from home so much that like to come to the office, uh, a lot of employers are having to, to, to set it up so that their reason for being there is purposeful. Like, it's not, it's not just to hang out because we want them in present in the place. It's like, I need to be here for a reason. 
And so what Stephen is doing is he's not actually, it doesn't appear that he's changing where he is. He's actually just doing it with purpose and with a gospel presence around the people that he's already living with and near. It doesn't say that he's actually even in the synagogue. It says that the Freedmen synagogue was, people from the members of the synagogue were the ones that started having opposition to him. Read it with me, again, starting in verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenian and Alexandrian, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he speak. Again, the spirit gave him wisdom at the time he needed. But where he is is really where he was probably before. He's in Jerusalem, but he's around the Greek-speaking Jews. He's with people near the Freedmen Synagogue, which was more Hellenized, and actually freedmen were people who were former slaves that for one reason or another may be buying and purchasing their own freedom. But they had a very special, specific, like, citizen level. Uh, they weren't a citizen, official citizen of Rome, and so they had their own synagogue. In this particular case, Stephen, full of grace, was just being present and demonstrating the power of God and speaking wonders and the gospel to the people in his circle. And and by the way, it was stirring people up in the synagogue. It was stirring the synagogue up because they didn't have any answer for the stuff he was spitting. He's going out and talking about this new Jesus in the next, (coughs) excuse me, in the next passage, you can see that they're clearly torn up about it because they think he's talking bad about the temple. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about why they're responding that way and the why it looks, but we want to look at what Stephen's doing and think about how that relates for us. Now, we're not going to the synagogue, but I would venture to say you're all going to the grocery store, you're going to classes. You've got a coffee place you probably like, maybe. If you're a student, you can't afford going out for coffee, so maybe not. But you have people you live with, roommates. You're in places. And here's what I would suggest. Um... Some of you will go to a place where your life is threatened and you will go to a place where the gospel is not and where you are out of your way to serve in a space with the people who are unreached with the gospel. And for many of us, you're going to be in an area that you are on a regular basis. At the same time, you can live with purposeful gospel presence. As you pursue the Holy Spirit and he indwells you, be a light of the gospel where you are. You have the God of the universe in his spirit in you. If he prompts you to speak, he has the power to work. No matter how foolish you think you sound. And I've said things I thought sounded foolish. And I probably have said things that were foolish, but even in his power, he can work through those things. People come to Christ on random stuff. You're just trying to like weave a story and they're like, you know what? I need Jesus. I'm like, I don't think I even got to Jesus yet, but you can have him. Be purposeful where you are. Imagine as you walk uh, in your neighborhood, as you spend time with friends and family, as you spend time around those, uh, even over these holidays, that you're readily recognizing opportunities to be a light of the gospel around you. Be thoughtful in listening and seeing when those conversations come up. Be sensitive to that because as the Spirit's in you, He will speak through you. And that's the next part in which Stephen is demonstrating. He is proclaiming truth boldly. What does verse 11 say? Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking 
blasphemous words against Moses. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized them, and took him to the Sanhedrin. And then in the Sanhedrin, they presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now what's happening right now is that he is so upsetting the people in the synagogue that they are trying to gin up some lies. They can't figure out how to stop this guy. He's talking against, they're perceiving he's talking against the temple because he's speaking about Jesus. And so they bring a, a charge, which is potentially a death sentence because they've taken him to the Sanhedrin. They were the ones that put Jesus to death. And so they bring the charge and it says that the Sanhedrin looked intently on him and saw that his face looked like an angel. Now, now, do, uh, does it have to be something supernatural? I mean, like he's literally glowing like a sign that says angel on it. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, it could be of any number of things. It's interesting that the Sanhedrin thought he looked like an angel. Um, but I would, I, would, I would suggest this. Uh, we have the same kind of recognitions, do we not? Um, ever seen like a parent talk about their kid and they just tend to like light up? You, you ever see like newlywed couples or just newly engaged and when they're together, it's like, oh, get her, go away. <laughs> I was going to say something else. <laughs> no, there's a love and affection and we demonstrate it on our face. And I would, I would venture to say there is a measure of, of the spirit enabling in us. I mean, in the fact that Moses, when in the presence of God, glory radiated from his face, but in no uncertain terms, there was something about Stephen as he had been in the presence of God that it showed in the Sanhedrin saw a difference. Do you have that affection for Christ? Do you desire and love him like that? Now, I'm not casting this out in judgment, just a warning. You're a follower of Christ. Don't let that lie. There's books written like what happens when I don't desire God because for believers, there's sometimes we feel like we don't desire him. Uh, that our face doesn't light up when Jesus enters the room. That we don't make carve out time in our day to spend time with him in the word. That prayers start to get few and far between. A couple of weeks ago, even... Micah, when he was preaching on, on devoting themselves to prayer, and he mentioned that when we begin to stop praying for things, we stop believing God for things. And those things we stop believing God for, we stop doing altogether. I would encourage you that even when you don't feel that kind of affection, to not run away from his presence. To spend time in the Word. To spend time even opening up the songs and if you have no other words, open the Psalms and pray them back to him. They're inspired. There's a lot of things that are, um, <clears throat> have miraculous appearances in Scripture. Uh, and I won't deny that. I, don't, I believe in miracles. Let me be very clear about that. But what I would say is that those are actually the exceptions more than the norm. Christian life is day after day of faithfully believing and trusting in God even when it doesn't make sense to us. When we don't see 
his hand, we can always trust his heart. And so you might feel dry in a season where it doesn't feel like he's present. The psalmist feel you. There's a lot of that there. But believe and know that he is good and seek his face. And believe me, when the time is needed and you are before your Sanhedrin, I would pray that your face would show like an angel because you've been with Jesus. And here in the presence of the Sanhedrin, the high priest who could be putting him to death says, are these things true? And on that response, Stephen says, brothers and fathers, listen. I love that start. <laughs> I'm sorry, it sounds like, I'm just hearing his voice like, brothers and fathers, listen. Like he's got something he's about to just drop. And he does. He goes back and describes to them exactly everything about their past like they've never heard it before. Pointing to them the truth of what they're doing to Christ has already been done throughout history to all the prophets. And Stephen's proclaiming that boldly, knowing that he is probably offending them. But he doesn't hold up. He doesn't let up. He doesn't pull back. He professes and proclaims truth boldly. And that's what we need to do too. When we are, when we are being a purposeful gospel presence, when we see a gospel conversation opportunity, when that door is open, we should walk through it and do it boldly. Let me just tell you, if you knew for a fact that the all-powerful creator of the universe was literally walking through with you, would you walk through that door? And if you're not going to walk through that door, do you not realize he is with you? When I was uh, younger and much smaller, I have a younger brother. He's three years younger than us. We were in a pool, public pool at the time, full of kids. I don't even have a clue. I would be crazy with my kids in that pool. My mom was up on the side, like sunbathing. We're out there probably drowning. But regardless, we're in this full pool doing whatever we want. It's the 80s, man. I don't even know how we survived. All right, so my brother is getting picked on. Now, my cousin, he's about a year and a half older than me. I'm out there. We're about the same height, which is probably a foot and a half taller than the guy that's picking on my brother. And my brother's smaller than him, so he's picking on him. You wouldn't pick on my brother now. He's bigger than me. So at that time, he's holding him underwater, pulling him up, holding him underwater. I'm like, I mean, you can pick, but do you have to, like, drown him? I mean, so we walk up behind my brother. He doesn't know we're there. And as soon as we walk up behind him, we stand up. And we're standing. It's like a movie scene, right? Like some kids. He's standing here, and he's like, come on, guys, stop. And we're behind him walking up. And the guys are like, all right, fine. And they walk away. Whole time, my brother's like, yeah, you know that. And he turns around, and we're right there. He's like, oh, man, I was feeling tough. Now, I'm not God. There's no, no distinction. We know this is true. I made an impact in that situation. Let me just tell you this. When you walk through that door, when you face that challenge, when you are looking at opposition eyeball to eyeball, you have more than some scrawny eight or nine or ten-year-old kid that's bigger than the one in front of you, standing behind you. You literally have the God of the universe on your side and in your presence within you. Promising all those things we talked about earlier. 
to give you the words, to speak through you, to give you wisdom and truth. And so we need to proclaim truth like Stephen boldly. We need to know that when the opportunity is presented, no matter what it is, even if it's simple as around the dinner table with your parents or your cousin, and the conversation comes up, we have the opportunity to be bold in what we know about Jesus and fear nobody. And finally this, we see that Stephen portrays Jesus. He portrays Jesus. And what I mean by that is, Throughout this entire story, we literally see that as the Holy Spirit fills Stephen, the character of Christ shines through. In verse 51 through 60, after he finishes his entire monologue of the sermon, he gets to a phrase which is somewhat well-known, or at least people who have read this before, and he says this in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Okay? No, I am telling you about the character of Jesus in this one, right? And it sounds like he's going for the insult. It really does. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you haven't kept it. And what's their response? When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. So Stephen wraps up his message. And I'm telling you, he's portraying Jesus. <laughs> and he's killed. It's very similar. Actually, there's a lot of parallels between Stephen's story and Christ, where he stops and stands. Because here at the end of this, we see in verse 50, I'm sorry, start at the end of verse 58. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, like Christ. And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after, after saying this, he fell asleep. So Jesus, uh, Jesus, similarly to Stephen, also asked that the Father not hold the sin against those who killed him. And Stephen demonstrates that same character. And the way that I read this passage to you is actually the way I first read it. When I read Stephen, I feel like he's going in hard. He's preaching to the Sanhedrin. They're wrong. He's like, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised people. What's wrong with you? He's throwing slang and insults. I mean, you don't normally see somebody. It's not a, it's not a compliment. You're like, yo, look at stiff neck today. You know, that's not happening. Right? No. But I would actually suggest this. Because of the heart that, that he demonstrates there at the end where he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Because I believe when he is going into speak boldly, it's not because he hates them. It's because he loves people that he's sharing the gospel with them that he has loved the Lord your God with all his heart, with all his soul, that the Spirit is filling him, and because of that, he is loving others as himself. And because of the love he's demonstrating for others, he is demonstrating the love of Christ to others. And so in thinking about it that way, I would actually suggest that verses 51 through 53 is, is probably much more of a plead. It's more of, it's more of a, a last-ditch, guys, 
you've been doing just what's been happening from forever. What, why don't you see the truth? Read it. I see it more like you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you've not kept it. And as they begin to stone him, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Because the whole time, the character of Christ is shown through Stephen. He doesn't take the insults and throw them back. They are literally throwing stones at him, and he doesn't throw them back. Isn't it so easy when we face persecution and challenges, we want to rise up and fight back. We want to defend ourselves or justify ourselves. But rather than doing that, like Christ who was humble and who was pleading, and like Christ who looked out over the people and and he had compassion because he saw sheep without a shepherd, because he knew they were not the enemy, but they pled with them and wanted them to find salvation, Stephen the same way says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And what's remarkable about that part of the story is that what we're going to pick up next week and see into the weeks ahead is that one of the people present at the tabernacle or at the synagogue was Saul. And Stephen is killed in front of Saul, and Saul's happy about it. But Stephen pleads, don't hold them, this against them. And, 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 and Christ actually comes down and meets Saul and takes a man who is killing, like dragging women and men and children out of their houses who are Christian. He's killing the church. He takes that man and totally turns him around to write most of the letters you have in your New Testament. To be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Stephen, demonstrating the character of Christ, says, don't hold this sin against them. To the end, he is pleading for their salvation. And Saul is one that is transformed by the gospel. He was loving the Sanhedrin. He was being honest and being bold to the end. And we should demonstrate that same character for Christ as Christ, as Stephen does. So let's be like Stephen. Let's first and foremost look at ourselves that we are pursuing personal holiness. Are we doing that today? If you don't feel a love and compassion for God, I would love to walk alongside you because he is beautiful. And I don't feel like reading my Bible every day. Just kick the pedestal out if it's there. Most of you know me well enough that I'm not on a pedestal, so it's okay. Because we want to pursue holiness so that we as God's people will be full of the Spirit and be a testimony of the gospel so that his character would show through us, that we'd be bold in our witness, that we would have fearless faith in this world that they cannot look away from. And like the Sanhedrin, they would look on our face and see the face of an angel because the Holy Spirit's in us. Let's pray with me. Father, thank you for your kindness and your word. Thank you for the way that you've taught us here today. God, I pray that you change us to be more like Jesus. Lord, even as we look at the example of Stephen, that you transform us, Lord, more and more into that. God, give us the boldness and the courage and the wisdom to be obedient to you. Lord, that we follow after Jesus 
as we leave here today, let's resolve not one more day would go by that we don't seek your face. Lord, we don't pray adamantly, even as we sit here over the Lord's table, that we would be praying adamantly that your spirit would fill us, that we would pray for the leading of the spirit. And as you do, and you're faithful, that you lead us to truth that we obey and we follow. Father, ask, I ask that today for us. In your kindness, demonstrate that love towards us. Don't hold our sin against us. You promised you don't. Your people have no condemnation. Lord, give us the, the confidence to walk in that freedom and the confidence to follow after faithfully and obediently after Christ. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.